The only thing outside of our control is the market. Things like a pandemic come along and then all of a sudden, you know, places go into lockdown. I mean, that stuff is, you know, that stuff you can't control. But you can make some critical investment decisions on what you can control. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today, show another code cracker. We're going to dig into the Christmas edition of the Urban Property Investor. We're going to make sure you are setting up your portfolio to handle market kryptonite. Yes, Superman obviously was always defeated by kryptonite. How can we end up not falling apart when things go a little haywire in the real estate market. What is market kryptonite? I'm going to teach you all about it using my 13x cash flow plan. Yes, folks, this is the big one. I've saved one of the best for Christmas for you. It is my Christmas gift to you. Hey, I tell you what, I'm not even here. Yes, I've left. I am now in Lord Howe Island relaxing. And the fact is, Lord Howe Island, you can't use a mobile phone. So I can't even listen to this podcast. So is it going to be a good podcast? I don't know until I return from holidays. Yes, I'm relaxing once again on the old big LH, Lord Howe. If you're not familiar with it, it is an island off the coast of of New South Wales. I'm obviously from Sydney. I'm dirty at Queenslanders for closing their borders. I hate Western Australians for doing the same. So I'm holidaying locally in New South Wales. And Lord Howe Island is an island which is not really advertised all that much because only 300 people can go there at one time. It is a great place. I've mentioned this before. If you want to steal things from shops, Lord Howe Island is perfect because you can go into shops and no one actually works in the shops. It's so laid back. In fact, the mobile phone does not even work in Lord Howe Island, so I won't be listening to this episode. You are cut off from the rest of the world in what is paradise. I think Queensland Islands are good, but I tell you what, New South Wales Island of Lord Howe Island is even better. So go check it out. Take that, Queenslanders. Hey, uh, I tell you what, I went to Hamilton last uh, last week and it was dribble. Do not go and see it. It is a waste of money. In fact, two weeks ago, a friend of mine who's a um, teacher, music teacher, invited me to a play f- at their school. And uh, me and my missus went along to that. That was more entertaining, watching little Lord Fondry forget his lines and kids uh, falling off stage. Way more exciting than Hamilton. So uh, save your money. Save your money. Do not go. Uh, That is my review of Hamilton. Now, let's get into the show. Setting up your portfolio for market kryptonite is today's podcast and it's something which I've been eagerly wanting to teach you 
but uh, I haven't as of yet, so I'm going to do it today. I'll tell you what, today's podcast could go literally for four hours, so I suggest you uh, play this show in double speed. If you don't know how to do that, just, I don't know, Google it. Uh, use that Kazen mindset and Google how to play a podcast in double speed because you're going to need it because there's a lot to cover today. And honestly, this could be the longest podcast I've ever done. Uh, I will try and do it in as express amount of time as humanly possible. But I do warn you, it could go for uh, quite a long time because it is a big big topic market kryptonite and I want to cover it off. Now, as you guys know, I teach seven property plans, an acquisition or capital growth plan, a rental growth plan, tax minimization plan, a debt reduction plan. We don't want to have debt. We want to reduce it. Uh, I teach an income acceleration plan, a finance buying plan and a retirement plan. All of those seven plans need to come together to fundamentally reach financial retirement. Now, the kryptonite part, in my experience, has been the hold part. And that's why we're going to talk today around creating a growth plan for your rental properties. Yes, you may be just about to buy a rental property and this episode is perfect. You may own rental properties. and Once again, this episode may steer you in the right direction. Now, obviously, we all have a goal when it comes to financial freedom. That's a mathematical formula of money. How much do you want to live on in passive income? I teach rule 20. Just take what you want to earn in retirement times it by 20, that is ultimately the assets you need paid off to throw out the dividend of that passive income. So if you want 100 grand, you're going to need about $2 million worth of real estate paid off, creating you passive income. Now, I think it's important to understand total return logic. The idea that Real estate is not only about growth, it is also about cash flow and it can also be about tax deductions. Once you add all of those together, i.e. the growth that a property can produce, the cash flow property can produce and the tax benefits a property can produce, it can be very compelling. And there is obviously a break even point where a lot of property investors need to get to. The break even point ultimately allows you to avoid market kryptonite. Market kryptonite is obviously something that's going to undo all of your hard work. The break even point for many property investors is the point where the rents cover the debt, plus the holding costs and outgoing expenses and all operational costs. And in real estate, we often refer to a property being negatively geared or positive cash flow. Property investors ultimately want to end up with positive cash flow, income from real estate. Quite often though, when the journey begins, you start off negatively geared because some of the best real estate in the marketplace is actually negatively geared. It's uh, performed, it's grown in the past, 
its uh, price versus the rent is disproportionate. So you need to make sure that you're going to buy a property that is going to get some rental movement, which ends up taking you to a place where all of the cost of running your asset is controlled by the rent. Uh, Obviously, there's three parts to the puzzle. There's you, the tax man, and the renter. Where real estate needs to end up as tax benefits diminish is the rent doing all of the work. And today, there are some critical questions around rent, which I want to cover off. Uh, The first one I want to ask you is, where will your rental growth actually come from? Uh, Have you thought about that? Uh, How are you going to create rental growth? How can you add value to your rents to push them further and further and further and further up in value? And I guess the kryptonite question is just how much of a loss can you handle when it comes to cash flow before it breaks you? And right now with low rates, really most real estate mathematically works. But as we know, things change. And if we don't set up our portfolio to handle property investor kryptonite, then uh, we may just fall into a place where we're not so happy owning a property. Now, growth is great. Growth is air, growth uh, or Uh, Quite often, equity floats around. uh, And I often say this, that, you know, equity is a vanity matrix. It makes people feel good. It makes people uh, feel like they're, they're headed in the right direction. But at the end of the day, real estate is about a check coming in the mail, so to speak, of rent going into your back pocket. When you get to retirement, it's income you want to live off and income comes from rents. A lot of the focus in real estate is about growth because growth sets up a portfolio. But quite often what I see when I coach people is a lot of portfolios are set up incorrectly where after a series of growth has occurred, the rents left behind are just not good enough to support someone into retirement. So the big five critical things which I see unfolding when it comes to real estate, the kryptonite of real estate is disinvestment, inequality, government, build to rent and inflation. These things are going to come at some point. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Disinvestment will hit your portfolio and I'll talk to you about what that looks like. Inequality is a big, big, big part of the marketplace today. Governments are potentially looking at the rental market and the fact that a lot of Australians are going to be renters uh, and the proportion of renters is rising every year and working out ways to better accommodate what that looks like. Build to rent, of course, is a big, big disruptor. Today, massive corporations are going to fundamentally control the rental market, pull the strings. How do we beat them? And of course, then there is inflation, inflation of Uh, the cost of goods and services, the inflation potentially that 
will uh, come into the real estate market if interest rates were to rise three, four, five years from now, can your rents rise with them? These are the critical questions we need to ask when it comes to property investment. Really, the kryptonite that most property investors have today is their properties are falling into disinvestment. There is tenants in their properties which are broke, basically have one week's worth of money in the bank. Uh, The government is probably looking at those assets thinking, you know what, Uh, that's a broke person living in that property. How do we protect them? Uh, You can't find a new tenant because there are better properties coming to market through things like build to rent. And if your interest rates go up, are you going to actually be able to sustain a cash flow loss? Now, quite often we pervert capital growth because a lot of people in many past years have had to pay $20,000 a year for 10 years to get $300,000 worth of growth. So they've paid potentially, you know, $200,000 in a cash flow loss to make $300,000 worth of gain, which of course is really $100,000 worth of gain. So in the past, cash flow has been a critical part of the puzzle. The latest growth rates kind of pervert the fact that cash flow is kind of irrelevant, but actually it is very, very, very critical. Now, I've covered some of this stuff before and I want to get into my big 13x cash flow plan. And I assure you, today's podcast will eventually end, but we need to cover off some of the fundamentals of what is unfolding. You know, the reality is as a property investor, other pieces of the kryptonite when it comes to what you own is operational risk. How are things traveling? How old is your properties? When do things need to be replaced? What is the operational journey of your real estate? What does it look like? Will it mirror your retirement? If you've got a 75-year-old property today and you've got another 50 years before you're retiring, what does that actually look like when it comes to the actual structure? Liquidity risk, uh, if your property falls into despair, what that ultimately looks like if you need to retire or sell. We got the market risk, obviously, things are always moving in the market. And of course, insurance risk, things like the idea that certain properties today are, you know, challenge when it comes to being affordable and insurable. And I often see this in certain marketplaces. Their property looks very, very good. But when you look at the operational costs of insurance and things like that, it is ridiculously expensive. So operationally, we've got a few things to consider. Broke tenants, the rising cost to own real estate, inflation of repairing real estate, And there is a huge decline of functionality of certain properties. I think 
we are starting to see the market spread apart when it comes to much older properties, which really are too hard to bring up to a modern standard. Uh, we've got some charming old properties, which of course are timeless, some architectural masterpieces, beautiful terrace homes and uh, beautiful art deco apartments that you know seem to last the test of time. We've got this middle part, which is just you know, doesn't work. And then we've got this more flight to quality part of the marketplace where there's some really great designs coming into the real estate modern marketplace. So when we think about rents, quite often we think about the idea that the market does the work, right? That there is no other formula, that uh, we just buy the property and we will get rent increases when the market delivers rent increases. And it's probably fair to say for many areas around Australia right now, the market is delivering a rent increase. Um, You know, we've got regional markets which don't have enough stock. We've got uh, places like Southeast Queensland, Brisbane, which is being overrun with, uh, with people wanting to migrate there probably even outside of the actual CBD where students live in Sydney uh, and the CBD of Melbourne where there's, you know, tall towers, you know, most of the rental market is doing fairly well. Probably with the lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne, you're seeing, you know, the fact that people could not move around, uh, the rental growth a little bit slower than, for example, the rest of the country. But is rental growth the only formula to capital growth? If kryptonite is things like inequality, kryptonite is things like disinvestment, um, inflation, how do we set ourselves up so we're going to fight this thing that is going to come our way uh, during uh, certainly our lifetime of owning a property. You know, the reality is we're probably in a very undersupplied place right now. So what I'm referring to, um, you know, you're probably going to see a bit of a rental growth boom into the next couple of years. If capital growth slows, I think what you will see is rental growth performance. And a lot of that is to do with the fact there is low levels of stock. The market is going to do a lot of the work for property investors um, into the next couple of years. When we've got the lowest level of stock being produced in a decade, someone's going to pay the bill for that. Someone is going to be charged for that. And uh, for the most part, it'll be the rental market. How much of that undersupply can the rental market absorb and who in the rental market is more likely to pay more for real estate is really the conversation, I think, which is the future conversation of all things real estate. You know, Australians, without question, are facing some of the highest growth in rent that Australia is going to see in a very, very long time. What happens after that? Uh, These are the big critical questions. And again, when we look at some of the headwinds when it comes to kryptonite, government, build to rent, 
the law of disinvestment, inequality, all are conversation pieces. Now, I'm a big believer is you do not want to be a slumlord. You do not want to be a disinvestment uh, landlord. You don't want to put yourself in a position where your rent does not cover uh, really your your cost of improvement. And I've talked about the rent gap theory before, but I will remind everyone as to what it actually is. The rent gap theory is the idea that um, if you let your structure diminish in its appeal, it eventually falls so far behind the market that even if you could get a rent increase, the cost to actually rectify the structure is so great that it is just not worth doing. So in other words, you know, if you basically have a structure and it's going to cost $200,000 to renovate, bringing it back to life to get the ultimate rent from that asset and, uh, you know, you're basically you know, $200 a week behind because your structure is so poor, uh, a lot of property investors just are unable to improve their assets. So what happens is the asset falls into disrepair and quite often many other people in the same neighborhood see their assets fall into disrepair. And of course, this creates the rent gap. The rent gap meaning that there is just no point in putting the rents up because the only way to put the rents up is to increase the appeal of the asset by renovating and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, which you'll never get back. And so as a property investor, you know, one of the big challenges a lot of property investors have is they're sitting on ticking time bombs uh, and will be hit by the rent gap. The other big ticking time bomb in Australian real estate, of course, is productivity. And ultimately, per capita, per person, we are seeing a declining level of productivity. In other words, inequality is unfolding. We know the rich are getting richer. It's easier for the rich to get richer than it is for the poor to keep up. We know at a global level, a mega trend when it comes to how people see society is that urbanization is still going to be a thing. People are still going to come to Australia. One of the biggest benefits to property investors is Australia will probably see about 40 million people by mid-century. Uh, we are going to be continue to be a lucky country, a land of immigrants where people need to get started. They don't bring properties with them. However, we are seeing that people's lifestyle is starting to be threatened and certainly inequality is one of the biggest challenges at a global level as to what is unfolding. And of course, this ultimately links to what people have in the bank. Uh, today, 26% of women have less than $100 in the bank. Uh, 17% of men have less than $100 in the bank. There are uh, one in really five people today that you see around walking around the street broke. They're broke. They've got nothing. They need the government to pay the rent for them. And uh, for me, I'm very cognizant that 
disinvestment and, of course, inequality brings with it challenges if you have uh, a connection through your real estate asset to this part of society. We're really in a place of have not uh, and have tenants. Have tenants, really renting a better lifestyle. Have not tenants, really half a week away from broke, let's face it. As we know, and I've mentioned this in past podcasts, and I'm really setting the scene here so we can talk about my 13x cash flow strategy plan, uh, is we know that Australian income and wealth distribution is is all over the shop. We know that uh, the highest quartile of people uh, do really well. Uh, the highest quartile of Australian workers earn over $280,000. The lowest quartile, $24,000. When we analyze the average household income, it's $116,000 as an average, right? And so between the highest quartile, the uh, the second highest quartile, the third highest quartile, and the fourth and fifth highest quartile of income earners as at a household level, it's very interesting. You know, lowest $24,000, second lowest $53,000 household income, third uh, $88,000 is kind of the, the middle range of income in uh, households. Um, average is... 116 average and median is is there is a difference obviously um so we need to understand that uh we can attract tenants but we've got different income profiles and that will correlate to the income we can accept as a landlord and you know i've alluded to this before you know the second biggest employer of people in australia today is uber uber uh, is you know a great example of ingenuity and the digital economy and the shared economy, but it's also an example of people needing to do part-time work to keep up with the money battle which is unfolding. And there is a money battle underway. And I think the best way to understand property investing is the money battleground is a fight for income of consumers. And as a property investor in residential real estate, you are in the human business. You are not in the contract business. If you invest in commercial real estate, you're quite often in the contract business. Your lawyer will speak to the other lawyer to put together a contract that is watertight, a triple lease. Um, and again, it's a lot of, lot of the reason why, you know, extremely wealthy people stick to the commercial real estate industry because it's a contract business. It's your lawyer versus my lawyer. Residentially, we are in the people business. Uh, we're dealing with people with needs. We're dealing with people with wages. We're dealing with people with different income backgrounds. And as such, as a landlord, we are in the renter business of people. Now, when we analyze, obviously, the challenges in the marketplace is there's only so much money to go around and people obviously have to proportion that out. They've got to think about 
uh, their housing needs, their food needs, their medical needs, um, their education needs, their transportation needs, right? And if one of these things gets out of whack, then something gets affected. If transportation's too expensive, does that create a direct impact on housing? Uh, my argument is we need to invest as a property investor with people in mind first and as such choose the best people for our properties and if anything, take money off transportation. I want the budget of transportation to go to me, not to the transport companies. I want the budget of food and beverage to go to me, not transport companies. This is the battleground of really dividing someone's wage up. We are battling for their income. Now, it is very common in real estate to comprehend that renters spend about, and really this is where, you know, you've got to understand the different income brackets, but renters spend about 30% of their household income on rent. So if a market is affordable from a rental proposition, you know, people are spending anywhere from 20 to 30%. That's very, very acceptable, right? Where people are spending 50% of their income, fundamentally the rents are unaffordable, meaning that person uh, can't go out on the weekend and do something. They're struggling just to pay the rent. And when we analyze, obviously, the different income brackets inside society uh, and the different types of human beings in society, certain types of people would make terrible tenants and create kryptonite for you as a property investor if you were to take them on as tenants. If interest rates increase and you've got a tenant which is kryptonite, you're not passing on that cost to that tenant. Alternatively, though, if you've got the right cash flow plan, you are passing that cost on to your tenants. And when I analyze, for example, single part-time worker parents inside of the uh, different cities, you can see, for example, a single part-time worker parent in Sydney is spending 47% of their income 47% of their income on rent. Uh, it's not sustainable. You could not make that 57%. So where does the rent increase come from if the market can't support the rent? The, ultimately, that person is chased off and hopefully there's another person to take their place. But if there's not another person to take their place, then we have to question where this is headed. Now, again, the highest income quartile of people inside society at a household level pay earn $280,000 per annum. What does that mean in rent? That actually means $84,000 in rent if you can get them those people as a tenant or $1,600 a week. Now, remember, 30% 
of someone's income is considered fair game when it comes to what is possible. Now, remember, you're trying to replace your income. You're becoming a property investor to replace your income, to live off the rents of property investments. That is the purpose of being a property investor. So if the purpose of being a property investor is to live off rents and a certain type of group can provide enough rent for you to live off it, it makes sense to me to target that group. Now, the richest quartile in society can spend $84,000 in rent per annum or $1,600 per week. Now, if you just had one property to that one tenant, uh, you would be well and truly on your way to financial freedom. Think of it that way, right? The second quartile of people inside Australia, uh, $135,000 average income times 30% is $40,500. That is the rent up for grabs, $778 per week. Now, for me, I love this category because I find the wealthier category quite often are not even tenants, but the group just below the wealthy, the wealthiest income earner, uh, the second quartile earning $135,000 income quite often are tenants. And I'll talk you through the types of tenants they are. And they're throwing out $40,000 a year up for grabs. Think about what that looks like. You only need two to three of those assets where they live to create $100,000 a year in income. Now, it drops down, obviously, the further incomes drop. You know, the third quartile, $88,000. Lots of people in society, household income, two people working, um, kids, you name it, $26,000 in rent or $500 a week. And this is where you often see uh, a common level of rent available in the market. There's a lot of properties sort of renting for four to $550 a week in rent. This is this quintessential middle income market. And again, that throws out around $26,000 in income up for grabs. Then we fall into the inequality part, right? You know, people or household income earning 53,000, it's 15 grand in rent. We're going to need about 10 of those properties to make things work if we were to choose those assets. Um, Maybe we need a blend of all of them just to make things work. But the reality is, where can we put the rents up? Probably in the $88,000 to $280,000 range. And that is why I'm quite interested in this section of the marketplace. As a property investor, we've got kryptonite. And we've got a solution. We're trying to find that solution to the market kryptonite as we navigate through this thing called property investment. Remember, there's trends inside of property investment. There always will be. Uh, Today, rental stress is a trend. A lot of people can't afford rent increases. We want to choose... Uh, the population of renters which can afford rent increases. We are seeing millennials nest. They want uh, houses and townhouses to to live in. But equally, we're seeing loner livers, people who are happy living by themselves. Uh, OECD countries 
50% of people are going to be loner livers. It's one of the big rises in uh, the idea of, of, of spatial transformation. We're also seeing a lot of couples today having one child or no children. And of course, their space needs are different as well. So there is a lot to choose from and it can be a little bit confusing. So I want to give you my insights into how to avoid the confusion. The reality is when it comes to rents, can we control the market? The answer, of course, to that riddle is no. Can we control where we invest? If we can borrow and we've got a little bit of common sense around investment areas, absolutely we control where we invest. Can we control how we improve a property, how we look after it? Yes, we can control that. Uh, Can we control who we attract as tenants? Yes, we can. We can put ourselves in a position to be an attraction magnet of a certain subgroup. And can we control the leases we put together with tenants and how we relet property? Of course we can. The only thing outside of our control is the market. Things like a pandemic come along and then all of a sudden, you know, places go into lockdown. I mean, that stuff is, you know, that stuff you can't control. But you can make some critical investment decisions on what you can control. And of course, two of them today I want to cover off on where you can invest and what or whom you can attract as tenants to your property. And again, I want to talk to you about what that looks like using a cash flow logic. Now, traditionally speaking, regional areas have had better cash flow. And typically speaking, the reason they've had better cash flow is over the years they've been less expensive. So when a property is less expensive, generally speaking, um, the cash flow looks better because there's been less growth. Urban properties, if you like, have had better capital growth when measured over the long term, but less impressive cash flow. So quite often, many people building a portfolio will dance about finding cash flow in regional markets because urban markets have not traditionally been great for cash flow or yield. However, I have an argument to that logic. And today I want to show you how to create cash flow out of the urban economy, out of investing in Brisbane or Melbourne or Sydney or one of the bigger regions to own real estate in. And of course, when we look at regional rents, there are some good rents out in the market today, um, you know, places like Newcastle and Byron Bay and so forth. The Tweed get very, very good rents. However, for the most part, Australian regional rents, again, look good, but it's because the property values are less expensive. And when you look at you know places today where the average rent is in regional marketplaces, it's not a lot of rent is one of the conversations. So, for example, if you were to go to... Uh, I don't know, the Barossa in the South Australia, um, 
you your average rent is $270 per week. Now, that's not a lot of money. If you were to go to the Western Australian Wheat Belt, it's $340 a week. If you were to go to the Murray River area of New South Wales, um, it's $345 a week. That's not a lot of rent. Uh, and the reason it's not a lot of rent is because the cost to own real estate uh, is disproportionate to that rent. You know, if you had a repair bill, uh, that's one week's rent gone pretty quickly. If you had five repairs a year, that's five weeks' rent gone pretty quickly. It costs the same amount to fix a toilet in a $300 a week rent property to a $3,000 a week rent property. And of course, it's actually uh, the idea of where the cash flow is rather than necessarily where the yield is. That is the question I have when it comes to replacing your income. In other words, today, some of the big rental figures inside of uh, our economies actually come from our cities. Uh, today, one of uh, the average rents for some of the more expensive houses inside of, for example, Sydney are over $2,000 a week. Think about that, right? If you could have bought one of those houses in Sydney before they skyrocketed in value and you were getting $2,000 a week, it's $100,000 a year. That pales into insignificance the $300 a week you're getting on the Murray River. Uh, four units in Sydney, some highly prized units, over $1,000 a week in rent. Again, that's $50,000 a year in rent coming into an asset. Of course, you have to buy that asset when the value proposition aligns to get the extra income coming through to you. Now, I teach there are four rent engines or four income engines when it comes to rent. The first one is the location rent gap. And I'm going to talk to you today about the location rent gap. This is the real crux of the conversation we've got to have today. Making this podcast without question the longest podcast I've ever done. So please make sure that you, uh, I don't know, play me in triple speed if you can. Location rent gap is really the conversation today. Remember, there is the rent gap theory, which is just disinvestment or the disinvestment rent gap. You've got the market rent gap and you've got the tenant relet rent gap, which I'm not going to get into today. The disinvestment rent gap, the market rent gap and the tenant relet rent gap. I'm going to talk to you today about the first part of the uh, rent engine, which is the location rent gap. Okay, everyone with me? Uh, you're feeling the vibe. Are you enjoying the podcast? I don't know. You've got to feel it. Remember, I'm not even here. I'm in Lord Howe Island. I can't even hear the podcast back because Lord Howe Island has banned telephones. You can't even use your mobile phone there. It's the only place on earth which uh, I think you cannot use a mobile phone. So we're going to go through uh, my location rent gap theory, right? Which is the idea 
that if we can find locations where the rents are just going to be better, we're going to have less of a gap when it comes to our cash flow proposition and we're going to be able to fight kryptonite when it comes our way. Now, the first place when it comes to creating cash flow from real estate, this is in the urban world. In other words, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, places where there is employability, places which are proven as property investment areas is the first one of the 13 is what I would call uh, demographics, cultural demographics. And the big one for me when it comes to cultural demographics is dinks, double income, no kids. Dinks uh, basically uh, create cash flow. The reason being is when you go back to the logic of high income households, the higher the income of the household, the more rent you're going to be able to charge. And of course, we remember that 30% of people's income is up for grabs when it comes to uh, it, when it comes to rent. And so quite often we see that there is a boom in rental prices where dinks commonly live. Dink suburbs are areas where in my own personal portfolio, I concentrate on buying because the rental returns are exponential because there is no barrier to putting up the rents. And culturally, we often find some of those areas are in the inner suburbs of our major cities. So the first one is uh, cultural demographics, a culture inside the demographic zone of real estate. The second one, which has been a proven performer over the last year, is the urban behavioral economy. And look, I've done a podcast on the urban behavioral economy. I'm actually going to play it again while I'm away in about three weeks' time. Uh, some of the mega trends which are influencing spatial transformation in real estate. But absolutely, the idea that today the big spatial transformation that people will pay a lot in rent for is sea change, tree change, and urbanity inside of our cities. So think about the beaches of our cities, the urban forests of our cities, or that coffee walkable culture of our cities. And again, this is where the big rents are. Now, from a location rent gap theory, if you've got real estate in these locations, your rents are skyrocketing in value. And uh, I was recently looking at a report at the change in median asking rent inside of some of our beach areas in Sydney. Uh, Bronte has gone up 35%. The asking rent in Bronte today Medium weekly asking rent is close to $1,900 a week. $1,900 a week. Worry Wood, Northern Beaches area, the median asking rent uh, gone up 33% to $1,200 per week. Collaroy, another beach area, 27% rent increase, $1,500 a week in rent in that marketplace. Again, what are we seeing behind those figures? If someone 
can spend $1,500 a week in rent, they're earning the highest quartile of money in the marketplace. Obviously, for us as property investors, we need to future pace that these trends are going to continue. Can we afford a property in Bronte? The answer is no. Uh, But can we go and find the next Bronte? The answer is yes. That is the purpose of being a property investor. If we can find these urban hotspots, the rents will follow. And I recently put together a, a great little beach story down in Melbourne for property investors. They're literally one suburb away from Williamstown Beach. And the ability for that marketplace in 10 years' time to throw out $100,000 in cash flow is possible. Uh, It just needs time to mature. And that is one of the challenges a lot of property investors take on. They take on the challenge of time when they become a property investor. But what you do not want to do is wake up 10 years from now with less rent and more expensive and bigger repair bills when it comes to owning real estate. Real estate can go from an asset to a liability very, very quickly. So the first one is the dinks. The second one is obviously spatial transformation. Uh, And I have been teaching the urban behavioral economy for quite some time, long before coronavirus came along. Coronavirus has exacerbated the idea that today, if you do own real estate near the beach or near an urban forest, uh, you're probably going to get more rent for it. The next one, which I love teaching people to understand, is the skilled economy. Obviously, we live in a digital world, a fidgetal world, where we're both physical and digital. Figenomics is a real thing. The reality is today there is a large proportion of society which is part of the knowledge economy. Uh, Today, billionaires inside Australia are knowledge workers. We have a knowledge billionaire. We have uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks. He's a knowledge billionaire. He has built uh, a huge company through Atlassian at... uh, as, as a knowledge person, right? He's an IT guy. He's a digital dude. Um, I actually uh, am part of a charity, which he is also part of. Uh, Room to Read is one of our big charities inside of our business model. We've been supporting them for years. We go along to the charity events and think, wow, we want to support. We drop $30,000, $40,000 to support the charity. Cannon Brooks comes out and smashes it with like a million bucks. He's that rich. The skilled economy is an interesting one because today there are smart cities and there are smart suburbs. Today, if you look for the smart suburbs where basically there are more professionals inside of those suburbs, you also get a correlating uh, junction of higher rents. And again, the higher the rent, of course, the better the outcome for you as a property investor because when the kryptonite comes, you've got a defense mechanism. Of course, uh, some of those skilled economy mission fit suburbs, which are smart suburbs in smart cities, are expensive today, but some of them are not. And that is the challenge as a property investor to find the value proposition. And of course, 
Uh, will more smart people want to live in those suburbs? Generally speaking, absolutely yes. The next area, which I absolutely love when it comes to cash flow, is the place economy. The place economy is a dynamic which I've been investing in for a very long time. The reality is in every urban large city, there are probably 10 suburbs which are not suburbs, they're places. They're the place to be, the place to hang out, the place to be seen, the place to go on a date, the place to go to dinner, the place to meet friends. They are places. Places command a bigger rental cash flow proposition than suburbs. That's just the nature of the beast. Bondi gets a bigger rental return than a no-name suburb. That is just the way it works. Why? It's the law of supply and demand. There are less places than there are suburbs, the place economy. Now, I'm an investor in the place economy. Uh, If I had my time uh, 30 years ago, I would have invested in Bondi. I didn't do it, but I learned the lesson pretty quickly that there is only one Bondi. When Sydney becomes a 10 million person city, there's still only one Bondi. I've seen the results of the place economy and as such, I've invested in the place economy in Melbourne. The place or the number one brand suburb of Melbourne is Fitzroy. I couldn't afford Fitzroy. I looked next door, Collingwood. Collingwood today is one of the best brands in placemaking when it comes to Melbourne. People want to hang out in Fitzroy. They want to hang out in Collingwood. Smith Street has been named the coolest street in the world just last year. It's the coolest place you can hang out in the world. Think of that. That's absolutely crazy when you think about all the amazing places around the world, all the cool things going on in Berlin and all the uh, amazing things that happen in New York and London and Collingwood Smith Street and Fitzroy Smith Street because they share the same street is today named the coolest place in the world. And sometimes you go to those areas and you think, well, they're a bit, uh, you know, hipster, but the reality is some of those shops are just amazing, right? You walk in them. If you want a $4,000 suit, you go to Smith Street, Collingwood, and you get one. If you want to, you know, some amazing, amazing, like, cool stuff, That is what place economies are about. Place economies are about the idea that people are living a different form of life. They actually want to be part of something interesting rather than just stay at home or be dormitory, right? And again, when I look at the mathematics of uh, the asset I own in that suburb, uh, I'm getting $750 a week for my apartment in that suburb, right? And that is through a huge, obviously, disrupting pandemic. Uh, My average person or the average income of my tenant is around $135,000. I'm literally taking 40 grand a year off that uh, person. They earn 135. They are giving me 40 for my property in that neighborhood. That's uh, a huge amount of rent because $40,000 a year 
when you think about it, you could actually live off that. If that's all I ever achieved in real estate is paying off that property and living off that income, I could actually do pretty well, right? You could be frugal. You'd go to dinner and, you know, uh, you know, divide up the shrimp cocktail. But the reality is that is a good level of cash flow. Now, think about some properties, again, throwing out $300 a week in rent. That's great. Uh, $750 a week in rent allows me to deal with problems, to deal with kryptonite. The fact that the person's earning a huge amount, $135,000, and I'm getting uh, fundamentally close to 30% of their income, $750, they actually, to be really specific, their 30% of their income is $778 per week. Now, here's the thing with the richer marketplace. There's really nothing stopping me going for 40% of that person's income other than the market. Like if the market starts to adjust and, you know, we're going to start to see a contraction of stock in the marketplace. And if borders reopen, to the point where immigration starts to flow again and tourism starts to flow, I mean, these things are going to skyrocket. Now, the point of the matter is there's only so many places in any city. The fact that I've got real estate in what is known as a place economy, there's really nothing stopping me uh, take out that uh, tenant and put the rent up when the time is right. Now, you might say, well, can't we just put the rent up everywhere? Well, the answer, of course, is certain areas will struggle to get more than a $5 rent increase. However, could I see myself getting a $100 or $200 rent increase on that asset into the future? The answer is yes, because there's only so many places and... There's plenty of suburbs, but there's less place economies. And the reality is uh, that human who earns $135,000 a year can uh, easily, easily, I can take more of their household income off them. Now, I might sound like a crazy capitalist swine right now, but these are the logic I need you to consider when you become a property investor, that the idea of being a property investor is about uh, living off income and where the income distribution is the best is the easiest way for us to live off income. The fifth cash flow dynamic of my 13x cash flow plan is contemporary mixed use, the shared economy. And uh, quite often, you know, contemporary mixed use is something that, again, um, you know, I've talked about in the past. I think it's amazing. The fact today that you can short stay your real estate on Airbnb is just amazing. And it's something that I have set my portfolio up to be very much part of. And I've said this before, like um, one of the big ideas around investment is to invest like Harry Triggerboff. Harry Triggerboff is the richest real estate investor in Australia, is the most successful real estate investor in Australia. Uh, 30% of his portfolio is good buy and hold real estate. Around 33% of his portfolio is Airbnb. 
through Meriton Apartments and around 25% of his portfolio is development. I invest very much the same way, pretty much the same formula. Um, 30% of my portfolio is designed around the ability to rent short-term or long-term through Airbnb. And again, the results you can get are just superior from a cash flow proposition. Now, the reality is whether you choose to activate the Airbnb or not is irrelevant. It's the fact that if you did activate the Airbnb, at some point you can get better cash flow. And quite often what I see is people are not setting themselves up for their retirement. Now, to be a good rent entrepreneur, to be a good airbnb it may actually mean you have to put some effort into doing that, which you can't do now because you go to work and exchange your time for money. But what about the fact that one day you're not going to have a job? Would you like to manage three, five properties and, um, you know, do that through platforms like Airbnb and intercept tourists to come and stay in your properties? I think it's a great idea. And the reality is if we even looked at a place like Fitzroy where an average run one bedroom will uh, get a gross rent of around 440 bucks a week, you can turn that uh, into a net income of 650 bucks a week in rent using things like Airbnb. And again, it requires effort, it requires um, a process, but the cash flow is there. And the reality is, again, there are just certain suburbs which allow you to do this and certain suburbs where no one would ever want to stay in an Airbnb. The point is, if you're going to set yourself up to avoid kryptonite, you need to consider setting up your portfolio to avoid kryptonite. The fact that a uh, gross rent of, uh, you know, 440 uh, is, is a great rent. But again, if interest rates go up, what can you do to beat the kryptonite? Well, you could go short stay, right? And again, this is where a lot of property investors struggle with the idea of building the right portfolio to be bulletproof when things are not going so well. Because not every year real estate goes well. And I think if anything, 2021 has created a perversion of what real estate is, that it's just this thing that continuously just gets more and more expensive and goes up and goes up. The reality is income is the petrol of the engine of real estate and you want the income. The more income you've got, the longer you can hold the real estate. The longer you hold the real estate, the better off you're going to be. Now, other ideas around contemporary mixed use are things like having a granny flat or doing a, you know, getting yourself a duplex, duplex like two incomes or a small block of flats. Again, it's a mixed use of the property. Uh, the highest and best use of the asset is two or three income sources. And for me, I've always um, had uh, things like that in my portfolio to provide extra income. One of my duplexes, which I have at the moment, just got a $45 a week increase, but on both sides 
of the home. So I got actually a $90 a week increase. $90 a week, let's call it 100 for easy math. That's an extra five grand a year. Do you think an extra five grand a year will deal with a interest rate rise? Absolutely it will. So for me, again, I am beating kryptonite by having the right asset allocation inside of my portfolio. The next cash flow strategy I love, and we're up to the six. Remember, this is going to be the longest episode in the history of the urban property investor. This thing could go for another half an hour, guys. So if it's driving you crazy, uh, if you need uh, a break, put me on pause, go to the bathroom, grab a cup of tea, grab a bottle of beer, whatever you need to do. Remember, I'm not even here. I'm, I'm in Lord Howe Island. I'm swimming with turtles. Uh, is hotelification. The hotelification of real estate is an amazing concept which is unfolding. And it really uh, works on a few principles that, um, again, money is up for grabs off a consumer Uh, The money conversation is a conversation that is unfolding. Consumers need to spend money on rent. Consumers need to spend money on a car. Consumers need to spend money on memberships to a gym or to a WeWorks or whatever their uh, spend is. The idea of the hotelification of real estate is branded residents where inside of the complex there is a kick-ass work from home we works there is a kick-ass gym uh the property itself actually has its own cars think about that right and again a lot of property investors um are not exposed to this section of the market, but I certainly am. I've seen some amazing, amazing hotel-like properties that are affordable for investors emerge in the marketplace where the property is rented, let's say a two-bedroom, two-bathroom, 100-square-meter apartment uh, designed for, you know, um, you know a, a, a double-income Um, uh, partnership has one car but also access to the owner's corporation car which is you know a tesla which is in the car park and again how much would you pay for that extra car and what we're seeing is that the rents on these types of properties skyrocket because Actually, the idea of hotelification is the idea that the disposable income of the tenant is up for grabs, 30% plus car, plus membership to the gym, plus membership to WeWorks, plus membership to the day spa and pool. And the rent that can be pulled from hotelification real estate is just superior than certainly real estate, which does not offer that kind of live, work, play dynamic. And uh, a lot of property investors have never been exposed to what that looks like, but I certainly have. And the rents are just off their head when it comes to cash flow. Now, um, obviously, um, 
you have to take into consider the gross rent versus the net rent because a lot of the conversation is, well, uh, someone's got to pay for the gym and the the car and the WeWorks. Well, that is true. The owner's corporation has strata fees and, and generally that's how it's paid for. But the extra revenue uh, outweighs the extra costs. And uh, when it's done right, it is amazing. And there's a few market leaders in this space that, you know, have game changed what it means to live in a branded residence. And the income from those branded residents is just amazing. And you got to understand, like, there are some world-beating architects that work inside Australia. Um, recently, I got to work on a Koichi Decada building, which is just going to blow real estate apart when it comes to branded residence and what it means for someone who wants to live in a place like this. And you've got to understand, there are certain people inside society that want to live this way, that they feel like they're living in a hotel, that they've got the ability to lock up the property and jump on a plane and head over to New York to do some work. That That's the life they live. And again, Kiyosaki says it the best. We've all got a broke mindset, a middle-class mindset, and a rich mindset. And sometimes it's hard if we've never been exposed to this stuff to comprehend what it actually can do for you from a cash flow proposition point of view. The next element of my 13x growth plan for the urban economy is the government. Yes, the government. And I do not mean uh, Centrelink paying the rent for the Gopnik in the Gopnik suburb, in the Gopnik dwelling. Uh, No, I'm talking about things like the NDIS, National Disability Insurance Scheme. Uh, Today, you can design properties and accommodate um, people less fortunate who are, you know, um, unable to find appropriate housing. And again, we are seeing some great designs come through that property investors can create and then obviously put their property through the government incentives and get the government guaranteeing or paying the rent, not guaranteeing the rent, uh, through things like the National Disability Insurance Scheme or NDIS. Again, a great way to maximize cash flow. The next cash flow strategy which I love teaching is pods. Yes, pods. What's a pod? A pod is just another word for walkable suburbs, pods, pedestrian-orientated developments or areas or walkable urbanism. All of these uh, elements today are just so valuable. And once again, I think uh, a walkable community has all of a sudden just skyrocketed in value when it comes to rents because the pandemic has taught us where we can walk in our local suburb is critically important to the results real estate uh, or what it's like to live in a suburb or place. Now, walkable suburbs are one of my favorite ways to create cash flow. Now, here's the thing. We often measure real estate 
based on supply. We know that Australia is going to become a big, big, big uh, country. We know by mid-century the target still is to hit anywhere from 38 to 40 million people. Often when we measure supply, we measure supply based on, for example, how many houses are being created, how many townhouses are being created, what is the existing level of stock on the market, how many apartments are coming through the system. However, what if we measured supply based on what suburbs are more walkable? See, the most undersupplied real estate in the marketplace today is walkable suburbs. Suburbs where you can live and commute on foot. Walkable urbanism is highly prized and the rents where there is walkable urbanism uh, and the corresponding value of that is just once again exponentially better. And again, you've got to think of it as what are you getting from the consumer or what are you giving to the human? You're giving the human the ability to not own a car. To not own a car is around $600 a month saving. By saving $600 a month, all of a sudden you can attract that $600 a month in rent. And again, for me, uh, the idea of a pod, of a walkable suburb, is is huge and uh, I personally invest in pods a lot. Uh, I've seen the results of pods at a global level in places like uh, very, very busy cities like London, Tokyo, New York and Sydney where today, you know, if you had bought in Surrey Hills back in, you know, 2011 before the last boom, you know, you could have picked up an apartment for 600 grand. Today, the apartment's worth one, three, one, four, but the rent is $1,100 a week. You're getting 9% return or 10% return on your investment. And again, uh, how do we re-emulate what that looks like? The lessons are there. They already exist. Just go look at what people pay in Greenwich Village, New York, or um, or you know Covent Garden, London, or Shibuya, Japan. Go look. It's there. How do we re-emulate that if we can't do it in Sydney, New York, London, Paris, or Tokyo? We do it in Brisbane or we do it in Melbourne or we look in Perth. We look for uh, the idea that all of a sudden where are the most walkable communities because they're going to get the best cash flow. Why are they going to get the best cash flow? Because some jobs are just jobs which never end and people need to live close to work. Barristers, lawyers, accountants, future traders, bankers, stockbrokers, executive assistants, EAs, uh, these all these people need to live in a high-paced uh, environment where they're not spending 45 minutes to get home uh, or an hour and a half to get home. And I can tell you, the traffic is back, uh, certainly inside of Sydney, some Ideas around walkable urbanism are something which I just think is is critical to good cash flow in an urban area. Remember, we have consumers, real estate is about humans. Uh, 
Commercial real estate is about contracts. Residential real estate is about humans. What humans can we attract and how uh, can we milk the human as the cash cow, right? And um, I know that sounds a little bit capitalistic, but it's just the way it works. I'm probably going to get hate on this podcast because obviously a lot of society is not keeping up with the Joneses. And of course, because a lot of people are not keeping up with the Joneses, the idea of taking more rent off someone, you know, a large part of society would find that absolutely abhorrent that I'm even talking this way. But the people I'm targeting, I'll be open and uh, upfront, are wealthier people. I want more of their revenue to put in my pocket. And quite often, I think um, what I see is that quite often property investors uh, actually earn less than some of the high-level renters in the marketplace. It's an interesting phenomena that I often see inside the real estate marketplace that property investors um, are just, uh, you know, quite often think, wow, you know, I, I can, I'm, I'm scraping money together to do this. And all of a sudden they don't realize there is a high level of income worker in the marketplace for whatever reason, maybe they're a property investor themselves, but for whatever reason, they're paying huge amounts in rent. And our job is to go and find that. Obviously, the next dynamic when it comes to income is the idea of flight to quality. I love flight to quality, the idea that in real estate, there is just um, better real estate out in the marketplace. And the more modern that real estate is, the better depreciation we can get from that real estate. And again, the best properties in the marketplace can protect us from kryptonite that comes our way because really uh, we label this energy income. The reality is for most people, the energy they put in every week is around their job. However, most people don't get to keep all of that output they create and energy they put into their work because they don't have tax deductions. And some of the best flight to quality properties have amazing tax deductions. Uh, I've put together a deal this year, which for the next five years gets around $150,000 worth of tax deductions. That's crazy. 150 grand. That's like a year's wages, more than a year's wages. The average median income in Australia, median income, not average income, median average takes in consideration wealthy people. Median income is $60,000. The fact that uh, a property I put together has some crazy numbers, year one, $31,000 uh, depreciation, year two, 31,000, year three, 27, year four, 24, year four, 22. It's like 150 grand. Like we often buy real estate to make 150 grand in growth, but the flight to quality market where there is just really good fixtures and fittings and beautiful real estate, if we can find it at an affordable rate, we can get some massive, massive cash flow. And again, it's this cash flow that uh, if the rents are really, really good on the property, it's worth buying. If it's not too negatively geared, it's worth buying. And then all of a sudden, we get this kind of 
top-up effect of cash flow. Again, it protects us from the kryptonite, which is out in the marketplace. Now, uh, the next one is education and medical. And I have spoken about this before, that the fastest growing job in Australia and it will be the fastest growing job for the next three decades, is healthcare workers. So it makes a lot of sense to me to buy near hospitals. And I do this a lot. Um, I look for basically medical precincts. Medical precincts also have an affiliation quite often with universities. So you get this extra element of cash flow come into those marketplaces. Again, you got to think of medical rather like a, we often think of the spatial distribution of a CBD. We think CBDs, that's where the office workers are. That's where the highly skilled professionals are. Um, being close to that traditionally has been a great way to make money. It will continue to be a great way to make money. Uh, Sydney is going to become an 8 million person city. Melbourne's going to become a 9 million person city. How valuable is real estate when you can move around to the CBD? It's going to continue to be valuable. The CBD is going to uh, largely transform uh, from just not only being an office place, but also a cultural place. So it's going to get better. Um, but again, uh, rather like also people want to live near beaches or urban forests or the coffee culture or the walkable suburbs, healthcare workers want to live near hospitals. And again, uh, it just creates a supply and demand metric which creates more cash flow uh, and better results for property investors. We're up to uh, the 11th, of 11th cash flow urban dynamic of the matrix. We're an hour 20 into the podcast. I told you it would be the longest podcast. I think we just cracked the longest podcast we've done on the urban property investor. You've probably all switched off by now. Uh, but if you're still going, fair play to you because we're up to the Todd. Yes, the Todd. Todd is fundamentally a transport orientated development or just transport. Just think of it as transport. Mobility. Uh, the more mobile a suburb is, the more it offers a tenant, the better the rent's going to be. It's a really easy one. The reality is, you know, suburbs which offer good trams or trains or ferries are just going to get better rents. That's just the way it works because people can ultimately move around. Uh, and as such, you get better rents. The 12th of the matrix is the green economy. Yes, the green economy. And again, I think we're... Uh, at the start of the green revolution when it comes to real estate, I have said this for for quite a long time, uh, dating back, you know, five years, the next boom in real estate will become the smart economy boom or the knowledge economy boom. And we're going through that. The fact that today digital workers are redistributing where they want to live, we're seeing uh, highly smart, uh, wealthier people buying up the best parts of the real estate economy. You are seeing the knowledge boom unfold. We're calling it the COVID boom, but the reality is it's been driven around the transformation of skill and how people work and where people work from, uh, the knowledge economy. The next boom in real estate is going to be the green economy. Absolutely. It's, it's where this is headed. But again, when we look at 
what is up for grabs when it comes to rent, we know that 30% of people's income is a fair amount. Certain people, I think we can go for 40% of their income. I'm certainly gearing my portfolio to go for 40% of wealthier people's income because I know they can afford it. Um, but also inside of that is things like electricity, right? If you target a property which provides solar to your tenants, what's stopping you adding some money to the rent? Uh, if you think about the average rent that uh, or the average electricity costs of a home, it's around $3,400 a year. An eight kilowatt uh, solar system basically um, can turn that bill from 3400 to 850 So what does that ultimately do? It creates like $2,500 extra cash flow, which is up for grabs. And I think the green economy is something which, you know, again, is, is a little bit, um, you know, I guess – it feels like it's starting out, though it's been around for a while. But, you know, certainly for me, like the latest property I bought was an eco property. It's got an electric car charger. It's got, um, it's got, um, it's got full solar. And again, for me, it's about going, well, if uh, I want to attract the best tenant, but I also want to give that human the best cost structure to live in my property so I can charge them ultimately for that privilege. And when we look at real estate and the thermal efficiency of certain properties, again, the disinvestment that is unfolding just makes it not possible for those properties to ever uh, get to a place where they're thermally, you know, efficient enough and I mentioned this in a recent podcast, I think one of the kryptonites which is coming to property investors is if they do have a low thermal score on their asset, they're probably going to pay a carbon tax. I, I see no reason as to why they wouldn't. Um, it's not going to be popular and, you know, it's, it's just my theory. There's no proof behind it, but I can see, you know, I'm pretty good at seeing, um, you know, the forest through the tree, so to speak. When it comes to the green economy, without question, green belts are a great place to invest in. You know, the reality is, you know, people are aspiring to tree change, but also don't underestimate inside our urban landscape that there is tree change suburbs where there's great parks and urban forests and uh, there is a level of efficiency of living in those suburbs, no different to living next to the beach. The final cash flow element to creating a result from real estate is the pyramid of livability, the return of the neighborhood. Yes, the return of the neighborhood. And again, suburbs which offer uh, a great local experience are going to skyrocket when it comes to rent. And, you know, uh, before lockdown, you know, one out of 20 people were staying uh, in their local community all day Not of workers. Um, during lockdown, it was like half. After lockdown, 
it's going to be, you know, it's going to be like four or five people uh, out of every 20 are going to remain in their suburb. And if their suburb's a good live, work, play suburb, it's just going to get better cash flow. And again, when we look at the most expensive suburbs to rent, they're these highly prized livable live work play suburbs if we look in sydney melbourne brisbane this is where the cash flow is this is where the best rents are because again they just you know there's a return almost like to that middle ring conversation really awesome places to live now uh i think the cash flow behind the efficient real estate in the inner and middle is uh, is certainly going to continue to be good. The argument is obviously when it comes to cash flow is can you still buy in an affordable inner and middle area before it runs out to get that cash flow and that six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars a week in rent. Uh, today it's still possible. I think it is running out. I've recently done a podcast on what that looks like that uh, it will run out eventually and it just, you know, I've seen it in Sydney, I've seen it in other neighbourhoods. The market's still pretty red hot in that inner and middle location. Uh, It's hot in the urban sprawl locations, the outer edge. It's hot in rural, it's hot in regional, it's hot everywhere, right? Um, But what we do know from the inner and middle is once the prices go, uh, it's very hard to re-emulate. Will there be another land growth corridor? Yeah, there usually is. Um, it's just the way it works. But will there be? Uh, will it be harder to be, for example, a place economy investor? Um, yes, it will. Now, remember the four rent engines is the location rent gap, which I've covered today. Uh, if you do not want a location rent gap when it comes to rent you can follow my 13x cash flow plan. Obviously, other rent gap theories include the disinvestment rent gap. Obviously, the market can um, create a rent gap. And quite often, if we have tenants uh, and we don't relet our properties, quite often the tenants we have cause a rent gap because uh, quite often long-term tenants can provide great structure to our investments, but quite often in return for being a long-term tenant, they quite often want a better rental rate and uh, that can create a gap. So we've got to manage this gap. And today I just wanted to give you my 13X cash flow plan for managing the location rent gap. Uh, We've talked about the disinvestment rent gap. We haven't got to the market rent gap or the tenant rent gap. I'll come back and do another podcast on that. Uh, However, I just want to wish everyone a Merry Merry Christmas. Thank you for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. I hope today's show was not too long and boring. I hope you enjoyed some of the content. And uh, certainly on Christmas Day, I will be back from Lord Howe Island. I return Christmas morning to have Christmas with my family. We're going to get loose, uh, my mum, my dad, my brother, my wife, um, and uh, we're going to have some fun. Raffi the dog will be there. So I want to wish you guys a Merry Christmas and I hope you get to catch up with your loved ones and hopefully uh, you get to catch up with them 
uh, you know, because it has been a long time between drinks. I know many people have had to do it pretty tough in lockdowns in places like Melbourne and Sydney. So this one's for you guys. Uh, as a fellow lockdown-y uh, prisoner, um, I uh, hope you're uh, certainly enjoying your newfound freedom and you've enjoyed this podcast and, and a big Merry Christmas to you all. All right, that's it from me. Thanks for your time. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.